Hello and welcome to episode 15 of The Dog Days, uh, where today we're joined by Martin Lucas, a good friend of mine, also founder of The Customer's Why, um, an author of three books and behavioral obsessive. Please listen into this show because we're going to be speaking around lots of things like decision making, why we think what we think, uh, and Martin's got a few things to speak about comedy too towards the end. Cheers. This is The Dog Days with Ollie Scott, Junior Eldstar and Ian McKenzie. Hello and welcome to the episode 15 uh, today we're joined by Martin Lucas. Martin, how the hell are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. I'm, I'm kind of uh, feel under pressure to do as amazing sexy voice as what you sound like on the podcast. But apart <laughs> from that, I'm doing well. Thank you very much, mate. And um, you can hear silence as well, which, uh, <laughs> which is what our microphones have for the last two weeks. <laughs> Ian McKenzie, he's been gallivanting around on BBC, he's been talking to royalty, he's been doing all these wonderful things, and we're very jealous and proud at the same time. Ian, what have you been up to, mate? Um, I have been up to, well, I took part in, well, first of all, actually, I missed an episode because I was in Dublin uh, watching Tottenham get to the, oh, yeah, I haven't, oh, I've actually been wow. a while. Since I was last on here, Tottenham won a quarterfinal and a semi-final and wow. got to a Champions League final. But I've also been doing quite a bit of work with FC Not Alone, um, gratefully part of the campaign with the FA and Heads Together, which is Prince William's mental health charity. Nice. Uh, they've launched a new campaign called Heads Up, which is essentially a season-long uh, partnership where they'll be doing activations at Wembley, uh, talking about mental health and trying to get mental fitness to be seen in football the same as physical fitness. So we were honoured to be a part of that. Wow. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm back and now Ollie's paying me to, to be on the podcast. Absolutely. Big yeah. timer now. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, only 30p a session. So Junior's not, not here because we've got a Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher, Gallagher type <laughs> of feud. Only one of us can be at a podcast at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, they can't be seated in the same room. Um, Mackenzie and Elstow battling it out. Yeah. Um, but no, thank you, Martin, for joining us today. So just to give a rough outline of what we want to cover today... Um, Martin, you're the you're a founder of a company called The Customers Why, which I guess on a surface level is quite obvious what it's about. Um, my, my my interpretation is that you're um, somebody uh, that set up a company based on the scientific research and neurological um, background that you've kind of taken in the last four years to understand why customers purchase certain things. But um, that all sounds very commercial, and I guess we wanted to understand a bit more around us as humans and why we make the decisions that we do. Um, I know you and I have personally spoken a lot about things like habit loops and how we get ourselves into bad habits and into good habits. Um, before I sort of dissect what you've done, why don't you take me through where it sort of all began and why you've got such a fascination and curiosity around this kind of stuff? Okay, cool. I mean, my my whole life's been spent with just a, a passion and fascination for human behavior. Like, why do we do what we do? And my skill set is mathematical logic. So it just means that I can figure out things about human behavior. And that's what I focus my life doing. The, the customer's why for me was about the culmination of all of that. Four years of research. But the biggest thing for me was, was understanding why the humans do what they do. Like, where does behaviour come from? Where does decision-making matter? What causes mental health? And I sat on the board of charities to do with trauma, to do with addiction. I've looked at every aspect of of, of that kind of human behaviour. It just so happens that I've got a commercial business, but the, the offshoot of it, the comedy show that I'm doing, the philosophy stuff that I'm doing, and my passion is still to help people understand themselves better. Mm. And I believe that that's about showing people, not telling them. I think that's one of the biggest challenges with any kind of mental health is people just get told or assumed what's going on for them instead of actually uh, helping them understand what, what is going on. I think there's a difference. So that that's it for me. The passion is understanding humans. The commercial side is the, the customer's part of it. But the why is really what dominates everything that I do in life, really. Wow. So how did that then start? Where did the journey begin? Because obviously your, your background, well, not obviously, for those that don't know who you are, your background began in sales. Um, which is quite an interesting start for me. That's kind of what I've always done. Um, I wouldn't say that's a natural feeding school into uh, decision making, scientific things like mm. that. So how did you how did you get into that? So unknown to me, I'd always 
won won business and done well in sales and leadership because I looked at the the behavioral side of it. But all that happened in my 20s when I had real jobs, to use my mum's language, was that I just got official warnings from HR for talking about human behavior, which I found quite interesting. So I was an award-winning salesperson but kept getting into trouble. So it reached a point where I just resigned from normal jobs and then started my own businesses to start exploring human behavior. Um, but the warnings were pretty good. I, I like the HR stuff. That's an interesting one about human behaviour. What, what was just just as an example? What were you kind of applying in sales that was quite that was worrying HR? So uh, the I worked in audio, video, and web conferencing. So what I looked at was the we had all these American big companies come across and it just destroyed it. And I was working for British Telecom at the time, and I said, well, rather than competing on price, why don't we actually look at what the person actually does as a job. So if you were winning a business for 5,000 end users, Mm. they would have different roles and different needs, right? So rather than talking about, here's all the buttons about what the web conferencing does, we trained them about the job that they did and how to be better at their job. And it just so happened that we had a tool to help them do that. Right. Just practical side of behaviors, right? Um, And (laughs) on the behavioral side where I got the official warning, uh, you you know, mirror and matching, anyone that doesn't work in sales or has never been through sales training, Mm -hmm. mirror and matching is you you just look to mimic the other person because you can become more relatable to that individual. It makes sense, right? I can just imagine how awkward that is when someone, like, because I I, I got told that once to do that. (laughs) And I remember I was in an interview and this guy was like, he was a pretty, he was just this like proper chauvinistic guy. And he was wearing this Rolex and kept on trying to kind of copy, Ian's copying me by the way when I'm doing this. It's really putting me off. I was like, but he was kind of like showing off his Rolex as he's talking. And I kind of tried to do the same bravado, macho sort of style of communication and just came off so inauthentic. Right. So I don't know. I don't know if how that works, the mirror matching thing, but sorry, I've interrupted you. No, no, it's fine, because that's the thing. It's like uh, one of the businesses that I had was a sales training business. There right. was lots of psychology, and I trained uh, over 5,000 salespeople. Okay. And the biggest problem with salespeople is that they don't think freely. Mm. That's that same thing that I've come across a lot. So my version of mirror and matching was not to copy the Rolex dude. It was, uh, and this is why I got the official warning, mm. was that I did some research on a business I was going to pitch the next day, the night before, and they were an IT company, and I got an egg, and I put egg on my tie because I, I reckoned that the IT person I was going to be pitching would be the kind of guy to do that. So when I turned up, he had an egg stain and tomato sauce on his tie. I'm not wow. kidding you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and straight out the gate, we just had a laugh about the tie and stuff like that, right? And I won the business, one meet and close. Amazing, right? Mm-hmm. What, I went, did, you, <laughs> I went what did you research? Well, what happens if he didn't have the egg and ketchup? You're just a scruffy. Uh, then, I, then I'd just <laughs> taken a guess at it, whatever. It was yeah. Like, you know, it wouldn't have been a win, but you've got yeah. to optimize what you could. Or this is what I thought was yeah. sales was all about, right? Because I was a, a country Scottish kid living in London that didn't have a clue. So I was just going with what people said. I'm very literal. Mm-hmm. So I went back to the office and I told my colleagues about it. I said, yeah, it was amazing. Got this great relationship. He had egg on his tie. I had egg on my tie. He had tomato sauce. I didn't have tomato sauce. We won the business. Great. And did I win the business because I had egg on my tie? No, but it was one little thing that helped me. Mm. So I told my colleagues about it and I was full of confidence and I was regaling them in the office. And about 45 minutes later, I got called into a meeting with HR where I got given an official warning for being <laughs> weird. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that didn't stop you though, so you've not become any any more normal. No, you that. just got to find out where weird is not weird. Right. And for me, that was when I was 30 and started my own businesses and started exploring more and more about human behavior. And part of your own mental health and awareness of self is that you have to understand who you are what you're good at and what you're not and that's been a long journey for me I'm I'm 42 this year and it's only really now that I feel really comfortable and happy to be doing what I'm doing it's like finding your your purpose which is a big part of of everybody's Mm. life I think how did you or what was the journey because we've asked this question to a lot of our guests and there's a lot of speak around discovering purpose how did you find that you know, and how did you know that you had found it when you when you did discover what your purpose or the, the thing that was higher than you that was driving you? Um, it wasn't one kind of aha moment. It was more that I went to my wife with a pair of Jimmy Choo's wrapped up under my arm, took her for dinner, and she knew something was going on because I was taking her for dinner and I had given her a box of shoes. So I proposed that I stopped the business that I had. I had a little bit of money in the bank, wanted to sell an investment house, and I said, look, I've got hundreds of theories about the mind and how people think and what happiness is and this kind of philosophical pursuit that everybody's under. Mm. And I want to go and study it. And I put an estimate on it that it would take four years, including testing, 
which was April last month, was, wow. the, was the four years. So I wouldn't say that I had a direct answer, and I don't think people should be told that there's a direct answer. There is not an aha moment like that. Mm. But what you can do is sit down and say, what, what do I actually love? What do I enjoy? And what are my skills? Because there's a difference, right? You could follow something that you absolutely love, but you're terrible at it. <laughs> and it's a fool's errand, right? Unless yeah. you've already got millions in the bank. So it's more of that kind of balance. Was the, that, That's what got me to where I wanted to get to. Mm. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I believed in myself. I trusted my instinct. And that was something I hadn't always done all my life. I, hadn't, I didn't understand myself particularly well and didn't always trust my instinct. Right. And when I did, that was when I decided to take the risk. Okay. Well, we briefly touched upon sales there, and I'm not sure if we're going to end up skipping past it. I think there's some things we could probably learn for people that are listening on sales, because I think there's a lot of people, you know, that are in some sort of selling for for a job. Sure. Um, I just want to relate it back to an experience I had recently. I, I went into a uh, kind of a sales role, but you could call it like a partnerships role. It's the same sort of thing these days. And um, I, yeah, I, I'd never done that before, and... Someone, when I joined the company, said, you know, you're, you are not really a natural salesman, but let's see kind of what happens. And I quickly realized when a real salesman came in, the difference between him and me, it was quite staggering. Do you think, you said there that you've, you trained thousands of people in sales. Can anyone potentially be a salesman or is it something that you kind of have within you? And is the process of sales methodical? Is it kind of one size fits all? Or, you know, can somebody like myself at 26 go into a role and suddenly become a salesman? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good kind of multifaceted challenge, actually. So my personal bias is that the very best salespeople can think freely about the other person that they're dealing with. And what I mean by that is that they've got a psychological read on what that person's actually looking for. So on a commercial level, one of my favorite phrases is that um, if you give people more of what they want and less of what they don't, everybody wins. So I think that if you've got that innate skill, then most of sales is just a methodology, as you mentioned. So for me, it comes down to human-to-human skills. If you've got that, then you can adapt it. I think for most salespeople in particular, is they're operating based on this fear, the, the kind of fraud syndrome, um, that they're going to get caught out and they just try and follow a methodology. Mm. And if you follow a methodology enough, what happens is that it becomes very monotone mm. in your delivery. So you win a piece of business and you just repeat that and you repeat that over and over. Now, don't get me wrong, that's always going to be the majority of salespeople because that's mm. the majority of humans. But the best people and the ones that I've seen time and time again are the ones that can think past their own natural selfishness, yeah. really, and, th- and think about what the other person wants. So um, I believe that anyone can be good at sales. Sales is not the innate intelligence the the innate intelligence that makes people good at it is do you care about people do you understand them and therefore you can give them more of what they want and less of what they don't interesting so how and without because you're saying thinking freely but how do you apply the process of doing that so you because okay i i've done probably more sales training than ian has because i started in in like recruitment and I mean before then I was started doing, in a suit shop started, well okay fine I started selling suits so I wasn't trained in that I was fucking terrible um, <laughs> hello sorry um, so how would you how would you start because I think I've always learned okay you, you you ask questions you ask the who who how where what why yeah. questions to unlock and get them speaking and get the person speaking more I once went to a Jordan Belfort talk where he spoke about the straight line persuasion it's the worst idea I've ever heard but what he teaches you is, is open, asking the opening questions, finding common, common, uh, common ground for trust, yep. and then you narrow down into what that person wants, then you learn what you can sell back to them. Very basic way of, I guess, understanding what sales is, but I guess conversationally that's how I would normally approach it. Yeah. How would you, how would you approach it and what's the process you think to unlocking them? I think that you have to look at the baseline of yourself first of all. So my favorite philosophical phrase for all the studies I've ever done is that life is the thinker, not the thought. Right. It's just a beautiful phrase because what it's basically saying is that it's not what you're thinking, it's why you're thinking it. So whether it's sales, life, your mental health, whatever it is, you need to understand what position your brain is automatically in in different scenarios. Because if it's not in a p- place of neutrality, then you're doing things selfishly straight out the gate. So that's a terrible situation for sales. So what I mean by that is that 
the opposite of neutrality is being super positive about something, right? Mm. So you might think more of your product, you might think more of yourself, you might have too much confidence with something. Mm. And then on the other side, the more negative side is that you don't believe in yourself. And what the brain does and what you do is, is a consequence of those behaviors. When you don't believe in yourself is that you put out verbal and non-verbal communications. 70% of what we communicate is non-verbal. Right. So, you know, any t- everyone's done this meeting. Forget about sales for a second, right? When you come out of a meeting and your friend says to you, how was it? You say, well, it was good, but no, I'm just not going to pursue it. You know those moments mm-hmm. like that? And what, what's happened there is that you can say all the right things, but if what you're putting across is a little squint of the eyes and the closed body language and things like that, is that you can push people away. So what, it's a big reason for me why 90% of startups fail, um, which is, which is the, the stat from mm. Forbes. And most of it is because people are taking emotional baggage into a situation. So I think that belief and, and understanding whether you're at a point in neutrality is, is the key part of most things in life. So is, is though, so would that mean the person, and I guess every situation is different, but does that mean the person you're trying to sell to, if you're giving off those, um, I don't know, the shrug of the shoulders or those closed body language, does that mean they don't trust the service or product you're trying to provide or they just don't really want to work with you or they don't even know that it's just those are the signals subliminally they've taken in? Yeah, a lot of the times people don't know. Uh, and it's not it's not as baffling as it sounds, but unconscious to unconscious communication. Mm. Like the vast majority of everything that, that we do, think, behave, habits, everything is unconscious. So if the brain picks up something like that, what the unconscious does is that's like your computer behind the system. Right. So your instinct is actually hundreds of different scenarios being processed and they take in those micro expressions. What gets sent from the unconscious to the conscious mind is, yeah, we're not doing it. So there's not always, a, like, often we don't have a definition, right? We don't sit and analyze it. We just say, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do it. But to your point about trust, is, that's a huge part about it as well because sales is human to human. You can have the greatest product and service in the world, mm-hmm. but if you're a dick about it, you're not going to get the, mm-hmm. the business in, right? It's that, it's that kind of part of it, the, the, that trust exercise is, is a huge part about life and sales. So you say, I guess, in summary there, for, for bettering opportunities of conversion. Well, we've gone super B2B on this one. <laughs> but, but you're saying that the best way to approach that is a, is a neutral mindset. Um, it's hard to do that when, I guess, if you imagine you're a salesperson with like massive targets and stuff, because you're going to go in there with the emotional baggage or um, demand in your head that you need to close this thing. Right. So I guess you've got to detach. Your, are you saying that you have to detach yourself from that feeling or that that kind of egotistical um thing that you approach the meeting with or how do how do you so how do you, you become go, neutral is what i'm trying to ask so if imagine you're going into a conversation right yeah. and you want a particular outcome to happen and you believe to get that outcome to happen you need to talk about one specific thing mm-hmm. right so depending on the person and their level of neutrality or not is for the one side if you're super neutral you would go in and i would ask the right questions to guide that person, right? So I'm thinking neutrally, so which means that I can think agile. So I'm thinking, well, how does Ollie feel at the moment? What's he saying? What's actually going on? Okay, let me ask this question, whatever, right? So it takes you down that certain direction. So you get the outcome that you want. Whereas if, if you go in with a point of view that you're super stressed or you don't believe in yourself or you, you think too much about what you've going on, you don't do the neutrality stuff. Mm. What you're basically doing is waiting for your turn to say the thing that you want as an outcome anyway. Right. Even when you ask questions, you're trying to force that kind mm. of outcome. And people pick that up. It's why we get so frustrated with, and why we always feel treated like numbers in everything that we ever do, right? Mm. It's people are never treated as people. They're not treated as individuals. And that's the thing that kills opportunity for people. So I guess it's the conversational thing, isn't it? Again, it does go back to just don't... You can go in there with an agenda, but right. you need to have that... You need to have the building of trust and the building of conversation and genuine curiosity with that person that comes from a neutral place to then get to a place of, oh, do you want to buy what I'm selling? Because after we've chatted for 30 minutes or so, now I understand that these are your things and I've got that thing that you kind of need that's going to better those things. Yeah. Okay, I understand that. I quite like the idea of combining spirituality with science in this. It sounds like that's the kind of... You know, you said you come from a mathematical background. Have you always been quite a spiritual person or were you originally very mathematical that's now kind of combined spirituality? I would say that... So the the triangle that I talk about and Mm. I've built a model around this is that um, you've got the science side, which is almost like the nature, 
right? So you're born with a certain chemical and biological predisposition. So if you've got um, depression in your system, it's likely to be activated at some point. You can manage it, but you can't get rid of it, mm. right? Whereas you've got the nurture side of life, which is the psychology, which is much more about what you experience. So how you see the world, how people influence you, how you're treated in life, those things combined create this mathematical logic, which is how you make decisions, your judgment, how you see the world. So the science stuff you can't do much about, but the psychology stuff you can. And combined, that's that kind of battle of self-awareness. So to answer your question is that's the spirit battle for me. So that's what I've looked at is the mathematical side, which is really the science of how the brain works. Mm. And then the psychology part, which affects the individual's spirit, affects their mind. And these things can be um, altered, and that's that battle of kind of self-awareness. Mm. That, that's that kind of uh, point of balance of how I would describe it. You speak a bit about the battle of self-awareness. Can you go into a bit more detail around what that is? Yeah, so I find most self-help books bullshit. Right. Why that's that? my short answer. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, because they're, they're often done, so I'm super biased about this, right? So okay. I looked at over 50 different disciplines over those, over those years, different types of science, different types of psychology, economics, different types of mathematics. I wanted to understand what makes an individual the unique individual that they are. Mm. Most self-help books can help, but they start from a point of bias. They're not neutral. No, they're very rigid. Right, so Angela Duckworth wrote about grit, right? Best-selling book. Really, really interesting, but it's not an absolute. She's coming from the point of view of psychology. We Are Our Brains, one of the greatest books you can ever read about neuroscience by Dick Schmidt, who's the number one neuroscientist and a very challenging name Good to say. Dick Schmidt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's Dutch as well, so I'd imagine That's the way that he Dick says Schmidt. it. Dick Schmidt, yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate. I'm so childish, right? <laughs> I've done all the study and I'm really smart and yeah. I like to make dick jerks. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so yeah, you yeah. self-help So you've gone psychology and you've got science from Dick Schmidt. Yeah, so my point is that the self-help books are not agile of mind. Mm. So they end up telling somebody this is the one way to fix everything. And the reason that I find self-help books frustrating is that it's a billion-dollar market because people want to understand themselves. It's the biggest battle in life is that humans don't understand humans. And mainly it's because we don't understand ourselves. So not to go down a rabbit hole about self-help books, some of them are very useful, but it's never going to solve the overall problem because it doesn't deal with the, the science, mathematics and psychology. It's not the everything. I'm fine, by the way, because I, I could stay on this for a long time, Ian mm. and I and Junior, I mean, all three of us really have gone to the school of self-improvement, which is fucking endless. You've got, right. uh, you know, every celebrity's written one. You've got Tony Robbins, you've got Gary Vaynerchuk, you've got Tim Ferriss. All the, actually, a lot of people that I respect that I listen to either on their podcasts or I listen to you know some of their speeches they've done, the problem is you can't read one of them and then suddenly apply that to your life because that life is not your life. Right. And, and actually, you know, God, even going back to the first one I've ever written, How to Win Friends and Influence People, there are certain things in there. Like <laughs> I remember Ian saying to me, because we were both reading the same book at the same time, and Ian was like, there's this bit in the book that just says, like, smile, go around and smile at people. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, well, have you tried it? He was like, yeah, I was sitting on the tube and I <laughs> smiled at some bloke. And he took his headphones off and he was like, what the fuck are you looking at, mate? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I can just imagine here with this really creepy smile. It's really intimidating. I said I was just listening to something that made me laugh, sorry. <laughs> but, but that is a great example of the rigidity, rigid, rigidity of those books. Right. Well, I got there in the end. So... And I, and I could stay on on this for a long time, but what would you this, what would you write then if you were to write a self help book? I mean, you've written three three books, but I can't imagine it's on this. What is the the right formula, or is there not one? I think that I think that it's better to look inside first of all. So, what do I mean by that? Right. So, all these self help books are what I call the IQ modelled world, and an IQ modelled world says that if you sit down, you read this book, you pass a test. You'll do well in life, right? And as an example, how can we have two people in life that have exactly the same IQ? They go to the same university, they get the same score in their degree, and one is wildly successful and one isn't. Why is that? Rich dad, poor dad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the challenge with it is that there's a lot more to life and the brain and everything than IQ. Humans have nine types of intelligence. So seven of which is like your kinetic stuff, your spatial intelligence, so ability to dress, walk, like just space, right, and be able to deal with that. And one of them is IQ, so language and math, which is the industrial age, the consumer world, the capitalism world, everything that we operate in, our education system is the IQ model. 
Whereas it's the emotional intelligence side of it that very little of it gets talked about. And if you were writing a self-help book, let's say that you'd studied 50 different disciplines like what I have, um, how on earth could you write a book that would allow the individual to understand themselves? Because a book is going to be an IQ model that says, here's the way to do stuff. I think a better approach is you need to understand how things work inside the brain. Because if you can understand that, then you can start asking yourself questions as to what type of person am I? Mm. What have I been affected by? And most of that comes from childhood. So I think that's a better place to start for people is if you can start when you're ready to start asking yourself the right questions, you step forward to start to understand self, and it's much better than an IQ-modelled world because IQ just leaves you frustrated. Is that, I mean, because the sound, we're, as a nation, you know, with these movements around mental health awareness and that kind of stuff, we're moving, and by the way, we're trying our hardest not to use that phrase in particular because we feel that it's quite overused. Right. But self actualization and understanding yourself and self-awareness is becoming much more popular. It's almost like the only thing that we, the NHS would have at the moment, and, and I, there are queues of people that are trying to do it for different reasons, but CBT, um, cognitive behavioural therapy, seems to be one of the main things on offer that is the, the first part of the journey that is a, applied or offered to people to have. But we're all people that have always been relatively self-curious. 95% of the world aren't going to be like that. So how do they begin the journey of self-awareness do you think that the root is cbt does it have to be trauma that creates the self-awareness curiosity or you know are we just lucky to be within the five percent of people that care about ourselves or are curious about ourselves it's a it's a really good deep question is what you're asking uh i've looked at cbt i've looked at psychoanalysis i've looked at trauma i've looked at addiction um I've looked at hypnotherapy, which mm. I find really interesting because hypnotherapy is a great place to start when you're ready. So we'll come back to readiness. But hypnotherapy is retraining neural pathways. That's what it really is. It's just getting inside your mind and saying this negative thought pattern that you keep having over and over and over, that voice in your head, let's just get rid of it. Mm. Hypnotherapy I find quite amazing from, from that point of view. So I've looked at all these different therapies and the readiness part is where it really begins because nobody sits there or wakes up in the morning and says, you know, my mental health isn't great. Maybe some people do, but I think the vast majority are more focused on the fact that they don't feel good about themselves or they don't have belief or they think that they're stupid or they think that they're not going to be able to do something so they don't try. It's the voices in our head that's more of the problem because you can have all the greatest therapies in the world, but until somebody's ready or understands just a little bit about themselves, they're not going to look. And I think that's the challenge. I think that's why mental health is becoming a buzzword. Mm. Which I, I think at the moment is a brilliant thing. You know, there's, there's a stimulation problem, I think, um, that we're going through at the moment. I read somewhere that we're, we check our phones 84 times in a day, on average. Mm -hmm. That's the average American person, yeah. um, which are, I mean, westernised culture, I guess, is quite a good reference point. Um, we're stimulated the whole time, and therefore we're, we're, we're stressed and we're making very um, fight-or-flighty sort of decisions, right? There's spikes of anxiety and this kind of stuff going on. Um, can you, on the habit loop thing, because I think that's a really important thing, because I think a lot of us get stuck in habits. You know, I, I mm. used to smoke quite a lot. I don't smoke really anymore, but I did this um, interesting, you mentioned uh, hypnotherapy. I did an Alan Carr smoking thing, which I ended up stopping for, for quite a long time. Um, what what do you, can you explain a bit more about the habit loop and, and how we get ourselves into that negative or positive habit loop and how we can maybe use that to benefit our lives? Yeah, cool. So we have millions of habits with inside the brain, right? So the, the most practical way to think about it is let's imagine that you just run some thought experiments, right? So you're five years old and um, your mum shows you how to tie your shoelaces. So left over, right over middle, left over, right over middle. And you try it yourself and you don't quite get it right. And then you try it again and you mess it up and you get frustrated. And the next time you get it right, and you try it six or seven times, right? And then... Once you've got it, it's all good. And the next day you try it and you get it right, but you undo it because you want to try it again, right? Because you're five years old, so you want to enjoy things like that. Um, once you've then got it down, you stop thinking about it. Like when was the last time you thought about how to make yourself a cup of tea in the morning or how to button your shirt up? Mm. Or if you've ever tried to do up a lady's shirt and it's buttoned the opposite side round and it's really difficult to do and you end up getting frustrated, but that's more of my Friday evenings. So let's not go there. Um, <laughs> I've had that chance before. Mate, so <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so we've got millions of habits like this. So the ability to dress, make cups of tea, shoelaces, things like that, right? Most people understand that. But what you've also got 
is is habits that can be negative for yourself. Yeah. So it could be a voice in your head that just says, you're not good enough, don't try this. We know this, we tried it once. Remember, people laughed at you. You never want to be able to do this again, right? And the interesting thing and the, and the real groundbreaking thing for me in terms of my own awareness was, was recognising that the brain doesn't judge good and bad. So the brain is an efficient machine. So it runs on absolute efficiency. So once it gets something loaded into its system, a habit of doing stuff, which is most of, it happens most of the time between the... So the brain keeps moving in seven-year cycles, right? So zero to seven, seven to 14, roughly speaking, is your habits and behaviours of life. By the time you're 21, it locks in most of your personality. Thereafter, the brain does everything it can to resist any degree of change. This is why we get such resistance to it, purely because it just says that I'm not changing anything. We're an, we're an efficient machine and this is how I operate. Mm. Well, I was just going to uh, to... to you know, you mentioned about self-help books, and I, I agree for the most part, but there's one that I read it, interestingly recently about uh, binge eating from the point of view of a, a bulimic uh, because it's binge eating something that I've gone through for, for long periods of my life. And she says in that book that all these... She, she went to so many therapists, so many people who kept saying, yeah, we want to know, like, your deep past and about this kind of, like, trauma that you may have had as a child... And it took like five years of therapy to realise that it's just ridiculous to keep trying to undress this trauma because she, all that's happened in her life is that she picked up a habit um, from a young age which she couldn't. She just needed to find a way to get rid of that habit, which was that whenever she had some sort of hunger, she just felt like she was... Because she rewarded herself before by binge eating, it just meant that every time she had that hunger, she just had to go on a binge, even though she'd tell herself she wouldn't. Yep. So it it was only when she read a book... For um, and re- and somebody had told her to read a book on, al- like an AA book about an alcoholic and replace every like all the drinking with eating and all the thing about drinks with food, and it was literally that book that kind of changed her perspective of how can I just get rid of that negative habit that my brain has just got so used to for a long period of time. Mm. But she, if she had known, and even when she went back to the doctors and they said, um, you know, are, are you still? Uh, binge eating and I can't remember where my trace of thought here but they, even when she went back and said all I did was got rid of this habit they were very sceptical and said no you know that's going to come back and you still need to go back and address that childhood trauma when in actual fact after that book and to this day 10 years she's been like she hasn't binge eat once, right. eaten once so I think it's yeah it's really interesting about habits and I, and I think with self-help books for the most part they are pretty I would say useless but when it's the whole psychology of habit, I think that's actually probably like the biggest part of psychology that we need to address because mm-hmm. like you said, there's so many negative habits that we get stuck in and they cause so much distress because you just can't break them and it's like chicken and egg. Mm. Yeah, no, you got it. So um, Freud talked a lot about about this. He said that if you can understand the origin, you can fix something, right? And what you're talking about is perfectly fair is that this lady just figured out um, what the habit was and just changed it, right? So the habit loop within the system works based on um, a trigger, so a moment that makes something happen, then a routine, then a reward. And the reward stuff is really, really deeply interesting for anyone looking at how do you create change with yourself because what happens is, let's say that it's 10.15 every morning, right? And roughly at 10.15, somebody comes into the office from the other floor and it's your buddy, right? So that's your trigger. And you get up and you go and make a cup of tea, which is your routine, and you put a muffin on your plate. And your reward is not the tea and it's not the muffin, it's sitting down with your buddy to have that 15-minute break Mm. or anything like that, right? So in that case, it might be that you want to lose weight and actually what you're doing is the muffin is not the reward. When you recognize that the time with your friend is the reward, you swap the muffin for an apple. And it's just a simple change, right? But that's you start to modify a habit. And how you can avoid resistance within the brain, because the brain will resist everything that you try to do. That's what it's there to do. Because when you try to change something, take binge eating, for example, is that there's many different reasons why you're doing that. And there'll be many different triggers for how you want to do that. So when you try and change something, the brain's saying, no, fuck that. That's like like a million things you're asking me to rewire. Mm. I can't do that. Um, that's its job, right? Mm-hmm. To be as efficient as possible. So you need to isolate it and say, I'm going to change that one thing and then you can move it forward. Do you see what I mean from yeah, like, yeah. the different loops? But in addition to that, I just remembered, so I, and she just, just discussed this in a book, but every time I go to the supermarket now, I literally, it's, it's weird. I'm like, okay, I want that, 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 that. I'm going to buy all ice cream, everything. But now, because I read this book, it's like, 
I'm able to distance. I'm like, actually, no, that isn't what I want. And there's no childhood trauma that's making me think like this. It's just that urge that keeps going in my head. Right. So if I just ignore it, then it doesn't end up happening. And that's mm. what she she said was because she'd been told this whole time she's fucked and something mm. happened in her childhood, she just couldn't get rid of that that urge. But just noticing that it was an urge, that was a big step for her in her recovery and it's helping me as well. It's right. really bizarre. Yeah, just, what, yeah. What's amazing about that is let's address the self-help book in the IQ-modelled world, right? Is if you go to a therapist, this is the kind of irony about psychoanalysis, psychiatry, stuff like that, right? Here's the question. Do they want to cure you? Do they want to help you? Because what mm. happens if they cure you? Well, you're not a customer anymore. Yeah, they've got one less customer. It's not a good sales <laughs> technique. My mm. point about that is that if you're doing any of those therapy roles, what do you believe? You believe that you have the answer to something, right? Mm. So I gave a reference to Freud. Psychoanalysts in the modern world say that they don't believe in the fraud stuff. They don't believe in the origin component of it. My point about this, why I listed like CBT, psychoanalysis, talking therapies, all those kinds of different things, is that it's all varieties about different ways to train the brain. But sometimes we just do things like binge eating because our parents didn't have a particularly good diet and they passed that on to us. Yeah. And they showed us that when we did well after an exam at school, so we've done something positive, mm -hmm. here's a big bag of crisps, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the habit loop is just what you've always known. Mm. So you binge eat as a reward system. And yeah, the, yeah. the reward system is present in, in everything we do in life. It's why the, the phone gets checked so many times because we're after dopamine hits. Yes. That's what the phone gives us. It is mad, the little, little dopamine snacks, like, ooh, someone liked your photo, ooh, right. what and person that, likes you in the world? <laughs> and that, that's why um, social media, psychology, right, mm. Has that's why Instagram is the number one cause of anxiety of all social media platforms, and I deleted all social media a couple of years ago. Yeah, we tried finding you online, it was quite hard, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm hiding, I'm in hiding, yeah. It's prison does that for you. But I just, I just re reframed it as four years of research. Oh, nice, nice. Just scribings yeah. on the wall of a, of a prison cell yeah, somewhere. Yeah, just a madman, yeah. <laughs> um, but Instagram's the biggest cause of anxiety because mm. it's got all these visual components to it, right? So it goes directly into how the brain thinks. And you could say, well, Facebook has visuals and Twitter has visuals. But the way things work in the brain is once you associate something with somebody mm. or something... So in the same way that um, we think about individuals, the relationship we've got with somebody, how they treat us, how we treat them, do we maintain the friendship, things like that. That's the, exactly the same way it works in the brain for our relationship with brands, for clothing that we like, and the same for social media. Right. So the brain is associated Twitter with short language, with Facebook with friends, and with Instagram with imagery. And what you look for, as you mentioned, Ollie, is that when you start to get likes at the start, it's like the first time somebody does heroin. So you get more dopamine release, you get a bigger high. And then over time, if you're not getting one like, it then becomes 5, 10, 50, 100, to the point that you can never sate it. So social media is like chasing the dragon, in that you can never get the same satisfaction as what you originally got. And the brain actually lessens it over time. I did, I did some fascinating interviews with um, professors on addiction at Harvard and, and Stanford, and they told me all about how addiction works in the brain. And basically, the first time that you take heroin, it your your normal ratio for um, meds and and just emotions and stuff like that goes to about hundred percent, roughly speaking, right? Um, heroin jacks it to like eighteen hundred percent, so the brain goes, "Holy shit!" So it lessens it. So the second time, it can go to fourteen hundred percent, but never any higher. So the reason why people can never get as high as the original time is the brain tries to cope as best as it can, mm. and it's the same for social media, which is mad. Wow. Okay, so mm. social media is the new heroin. That's, yeah. uh, I'm going to write that down. That could be the title of this podcast. <laughs> not the thinking, not the thought. But, but yeah, I mean, that kind of ties in again, doesn't it? That being um, being the thinker and not the thought. So I see, I hear that phrase and I think of uh, a spiritual um, definition. So I, I've always said that, you know, we, we are not our thoughts. And um, although we get tricked into saying, I am... I am anxious, I am happy, I am sad. It's much more, I am feeling, or I'm experiencing feelings of anxiety, I'm experiencing feelings of happiness, and I'm experiencing feelings of sadness. That That's my perception, I guess, of what you mean by the thinker of the thought, or not the thought. Um, how do you define that, and how does that kind of loop into this? I call it the, the Ian rule now. Okay. <laughs> so why? exactly what you talked about um, with regards to why did that lady binge eat, mm. Right. So there's always an origin about why you think the way that you do about any given moment in any given time. And what Ian talked 
about about being in supermarkets and looking at the shelves and just questioning what he's going to do is when he's actually understood the origin of why he's got a behavior, why he's got a habit, why he binge eats. And now what he's got is is the awareness to just pause and just say, am I doing this for the right reasons? Because sometimes it's great to eat cake, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just don't want to do it every single day surrounded by six other types of categories of food because that's what I do as well. I've got the same kind of reward system and it comes from my childhood. So I, I binge eat, that's my reward um, for doing those kinds of things. The point about this is that we all have a choice to become our own architect of how we think. So think about it in terms of the unconscious mind is the driving force of who you are. And it's all based on your past. That's what it makes decisions based on. So what you've got as conscious thoughts is a very limited number of thoughts relative to what the unconscious mind's doing. When you do what Ian did in the supermarket, he's decided, because he understands something that he would like to optimize about what he's doing, mm. to think about it. So he's taking control of what he consciously thinks about because he's aware of what he does, why he does it, and what he has decided he wants to change. Mm. And that's the difference for me, because that's the emotional intelligence side of the world where you've got the awareness of self and you're deciding what you want to do. You just have to understand the origin of why you're doing something. I'm just imagining being like, do you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. Do you know Bran the Broken? I do. Okay, yeah. You know he's a little bit weird, like he doesn't really engage any human beings anymore, he's a bit like staring into the nothingness and someone's talking to him and he's just thinking He's a walking about, gif. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, not a walking gif. Well, yeah, sorry. It's <laughs> a rolling gif. Um, but I just worry if you become so um, analytical of your own thoughts, it can also be quite a dangerous place. Like, some people have to have certain brains to, to be on this level of thinking and actually the path of least resistance and the easiest path to go with is just what you are feeling that at that moment. So there's, I find myself in a bit of a battle sometimes being like, no, I'm thinking that because I'm da-da-da. And then on the other side, I'm like, well, I might just fucking have it because I want it. So you do yeah. have an internal battle the whole time, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but that's where I think where addiction comes into it, I guess, because someone like Russell Brand, like mm. it might not be that bad for... He said he's sober now for how many years? But 12, if it, yeah. and, and if it might not be bad for him to have like a smoke of a joint, but it's like doing that will then lead him to like go and do all of the other stuff. So some people do have to be really analytical because I know, for example, as soon as I give in to those temptations again, that I just go mm. on that self-repeating cycle. But I get yeah for for you, I think like you've balanced quite well when it comes to food. Sometimes you pig out, mm. sometimes you don't. But then there's other aspects of your life where maybe. Like you would need to be more analytical. Mm. I think yeah. For me, my 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 thing would be booze. Would be drinking. Like I will go. I think we we chat about this, didn't we? Because you only drink four times a year. From what I remember you saying. Yeah, my my friends in Scotland don't believe that because that's the only times that I'm actually home and I see them. I'm always drinking, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Everyone else that knows me you just knows can't that I don't. break that habit. There's no yeah, point. no, they, they are my habit. I right. see my friends, I get drunk. Yeah. So and then, but every time I see them, I'm like, yeah, I only drink like when I see you guys, and they don't believe me because why would you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. Okay, so yeah, I mean that that's probably where I feel. And and there are so many habits. It's always and you're right. You know, you're saying about having that muffin and and replacing it with an apple. I know that my trigger to drinking is with my friends and, you know, living in London and seeing them on a Thursday or a Friday evening, sometimes a Saturday, you can almost guarantee there's a 95% chance that I'm probably going to get very drunk on a Friday with whichever friends that I'm around at that time because that will be what my my habit will be. It will be get drunk with those people. It won't be, you know, fucking rock climbing with them. It won't be, you know, go to... A, I've tried doing a yoga workout, but it, it's... You don't get the, the the dopamine hit that I would normally get if I went out and had a load of beers with them. Yeah. So at the moment, my my negotiation with that is, well, I'm enjoying that so much at the moment that I can't find another thing that I would enjoy more than that. And at the moment, it's not detrimental enough to my life to, for me to learn to replace that habit. However, I know with the aging of the human body, my hangover is going to get worse the nearer I get to 30. Um, the friends will be doing different things, so there'll be fewer of them. And I imagine that I'll have to naturally come to a bit of a close with my repetitive, habitual uh, drinking on a Friday evening. So I, I'm kind of, I, I battle with this quite a lot. Being like, oh, do I need to go out on that Friday? What can I put in place to not do it? You know, because. And I really do beat myself up about going out on that week on on the you know the Saturday morning. I'd be like, why did I get into a hangover? Now I've got to fucking lounge around, do nothing, and you know this is a this is the worst thing ever. Was it worth it? No, I spent loads of money. Da da da. 
Um, I know what point I'm making here, but that was just me sharing. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> hang, I, hang, I, was, I, hang was are worth it for the binge eating. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> so starting a loop on. here. Yeah, yeah but, that, but that's one of the reasons why I can't. I don't like going out, getting pissed because the last Friday we were drinking, mm. and then I we had like a big spread at Matt's thing, and I just had like two or three plates, and I was like, I know what I'm doing here, but fuck it. Like I'm, I've had a few beers, and then and then on a Saturday had another few beers and I went to the supermarket and did some of those decisions but still luckily today like so, like not having drunk for a couple of days I'm in control but drinking really always brings that those habits back do we sorry on this do we but can we thank the drinking no is, is, wait, fuck wait, drinking but, <laughs> but bear with me like so Gory drunk on Friday well it was really fun Saturday awful binge well, we regret that day but then the following five days me will be diet heavy you know I'll be making sure that I'm exercising once or twice a day mm. whatever like so and I, I that is living two worlds of extremes and hopefully that'll balance out as I get older but I in a way I do all this to kind of ena- enable my, <laughs> my going out on a Friday so it's a weird one well I mean what what you're really talking about is like the, the battle itself right mm. so the first thing that I want to point out was probably the biggest awareness that I had for my own self-awareness when I started this the really core study of what I started in 2015, I didn't expect to go on such a, a journey of awareness of self. It was just a proxy of, of what I was studying. Mm. The biggest realisation for me was that I've got a very analytical mind. You talked about that, right? Is that I just suddenly realised that not everything is about change. Not everything is about criticising self and saying you're not doing this, you could be doing differently, you could be doing better. Because that's just a part of mental health. Mm. Because if you think about what you're just doing is you're just actually using positives and awareness to destroy yourself because you're just criticising yourself. Mm. There's nothing wrong with drinking in moderation. There's nothing wrong with having fun. There's all those kind of things, right? So having awareness doesn't mean that you have to change everything. But if you don't have awareness, then how do you know what you could change? Mm. Going back to the binge eating, right? You see what I mean? It's like awareness is about... Awareness. Mm. It's not always saying that you have to change or that you have to be on some society's pedestal to be like this perfect version because everybody's a little bit weird and that's cool. Wow. I really like that. We could just finish the podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I really, that's a really important point because a lot of people that aren't on this quest of self actualization do look at some of us and be like, why do you fucking beat yourself all the time? You just went out once, get over it. Like, and I think we are analytical of ourselves. We are aware, but equally critical to our own detriment based on where we put ourselves within society and where society puts us. Because in relativity to other people, we're probably doing all right. You know, we're, we're in maybe the top 20%, I don't know, of, of whatever society gauges, you know, 20%. Of weird. Yeah, of weird. <laughs> no, I'm definitely fucking weird. I think we all know that. But... Yeah, that's a really good point. It's it's one thing to be aware and it's one thing to want to change that thing um, and it's another to be hypercritical of yourself for not doing that thing. Um, I think that is important cause, and that's, you know, we bang on quite a lot about and I, I'm, really, I'm really wary of preaching too much on this podcast and I really don't want to do that because we all have completely different stories that we tell ourselves and we already beat ourselves up about the little things in life already. Um, so it's important that we understand what is important to ourselves and not what society or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook is telling us is important um, because that's not what you... That's not your journey. Yeah, no, I mean, let's... You mentioned the social rights, so let's let's close on the social media psychology stuff. Mm. Is um, You could put your hands up, which I'll just have to tell you who puts their hands up, right? When was the last post you put on Facebook of you having an argument with your missus? Or partner, whoever. I wish I had, I wish I had a missus. I wish I uh, had anyone that was close to a missus. So you've never had. So when you did have a girlfriend, did you ever post pictures of you arguing on Facebook? No, the nearest I got to that was probably posting a, a video of Hannah that she didn't want on on social media, I and mean, right. we'd be like. My, my point about this is that I know a lot of social influencers. My business does a lot of sales and marketing activity, right? So right. I know a lot of social influencers on Instagram. None of them are posting any negatives about their life. Mm-mm. All of them are saying how wonderful everything is. Look at me. Look at me in this perfect pose. Look how beautiful I am. Look at the clothes that I've got. Look at the car that I'm in. There's a company in Russia that rents out private jets by the hour so people can sit in it and have pictures taken that they then post on Instagram to pretend that they've Mm. got a private plane. 
right? That's the modern world that we're in. That's that's the big negative side of what social media has brought to us. There's lots of positives. I've made a personal choice not to use any of it because I've looked at the negatives and I've got a very addictive nature. So all I was doing was the dopamine hunt mm, and getting mm. frustrated with things that I didn't need to get frustrated with. So I got rid of it. That's wow. my point about it is that it generates anxiety because everyone's projecting what they think is wonderful about mm. what they're doing, you know? Yeah, it's a hard one. We, I was at a thing on Sunday and a lot, uh, like a panel discussion and one of the panels was talking about obviously digital and social media and I think for me, it's it's I am addicted to it and I spend a lot of time on it but when you're trying to build a platform off the ground, for me, it's imperative. I couldn't live without it. I wouldn't have had the experiences of the last couple of weeks if I hadn't had social media because it's what... You know, it's how you can build a community. It's how you can build your own tribe. And I think you can use it in a way to do positive things. But then obviously, yeah, subsequently for me, it does have an impact on, on me because I spend all my time trying to grow this audience, which will in turn long in a long term, you know, maybe create some rewards. But, you know, you do sacrifice your own personal health on that journey mm. with it. It is true because you you, you, we are comparative creatures. So... When you put a good thing up about what you're doing, it then will inspire me to do a similar thing as well. Am I? Well, actually, I'm probably the worst person to ask about this. <laughs> put up, putting up my dirty laundry, I probably am actually. <laughs> um, I'm quite bad. I'm a bit of a film. I'll just film everything that goes on. I'm a bit like a, a dab with Facebook. <laughs> um, but I don't see many other people doing that. And actually, I, I'm quite judgmental when I see people doing that themselves. I'm like, oh god, why is she putting that fucking video? Yeah, up? but equally, I mean the. I genuinely put you on a bit of a pedestal for what you write about on LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn's very different. Because it's it's inspirational, it's about life, it's about how you see things. Mm. I don't always agree with everything, but mm. that's the point, right? It's like you're putting out healthy stuff. And to what what you were talking about, Ian, I don't think that I don't think using social media is bad. You've just got to have the consciousness and the balance about what you're doing. Because mm. if you are just chasing the, the dragon and, and just looking for those types of hits with stuff as well. It can lead people to, and um, I mean, I had before I deleted Twitter, I had nearly fifty thousand followers, mm -hmm. and the type of business I had, it was great for that, and it was wonderful. Um, but I used to get very frustrated with the thing on Twitter. Is within five minutes, you could search any subject matter, and you could find people that, um, let's say, police violence in the U.S. was one of the study things that I did, right? Which is very, very there. It's present. It's racist. There's mm -hmm. a lot of it going on. But when you've got some dude that's sitting in Cambridge talking about how their life is being penalised because of the police violence in the United States, this is the social media hunt that people go on. It's the mental <laughs> proof where people are like, my life's terrible because I'm um, I'm dealing with prejudice, as you can tell by the police violence that's going on in the, US. In the United States. <laughs> Whilst I'm sitting here Not in Cambridge. In Cambridge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My, my point is that you can find proof of anything. So it's about what your mindset is. Yeah, it's true. So if your mindset is neutral... Um, then use social media. Mm. Wonderful, enjoy it. Mm -hmm. If your mindset can both be positive, negative, but you have the awareness of when you're going to go up and down, that's fine, just use it. Mm. I'm definitely 100% not saying follow what I do. No. Because my whole mantra about everything that I've learned is to show, not tell. Mm. Because if I'm telling you, then I'm doing the IQ model thing. Mm. I'm saying go and look at 50 different disciplines, go and try hypnotherapy, right? And that's only a solution that's worked for me because that's what my purpose was. That's what I wanted to understand. Mm. I don't believe I have all the answers. I just believe I've got some decent questions. Yeah. Right? And that's a really good way of looking at it. It's, it's you know, rather than us being... And this is why we have so many different people that have come from all the different worlds because we don't believe there is one answer to any one life. And, and actually, it's about self-awareness and the journey that you're on to learn more about you and hopefully these little things that we're doing, these podcasts, can spike, you know, 1% of interest with someone's going, oh, actually, I might try that little thing. I might go into the 50 disciplines of behavior or whatever. Um, okay, so you're on, on a lighter note, not that that was dark, but I guess we've kind of, um, we've shunned the idea of social media or, or at least discussed it to great length. Yeah. Um, you're doing a comedy set. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And, and is it going to be this kind of this thing? What, what are you going to be talking about? So it's going to be comedy philosophy. Or better, comedy and philosophy. Okay. So I'm going to go to the dark side of the world. I'm going to go to the light side of the world. Right. And I'm scared. So this is this is a thing about um, understanding self, right? So I've been told over the years by many of my friends to try the comedy stuff, that I'm good at storytelling, things like that, and I've got nothing but fear about it. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, though, here's a good question, right? right? When do you ever feel completely at peace? 
And my answer to that is on stage. I've always felt that. Whenever I'm on stage, I feel super happy, super chilled, anything can come at me. Um, so that's what I'm going to do is get past that fear of just doing the comedy stuff. I have the fear that nobody laughs. <laughs> but, but, oh, Christ, that way, if you say you're all at peace when you're on stage, yeah. what are you scared of then? Well, I've done loads of public speaking oh, okay, and things right. like that, but I've never stood up and said, or got people in a room to say, this is going to be funny and then find out so that's it so mm -hmm. the, the whole thing for me I'm calling it the meaning of life because I'm arrogant as fuck <laughs> <laughs> no but the point about it is that I'm going to give people the meaning to their lives right so what we've got is eight segments so that no show's ever the same so the audience picks a card for each segment and that's what we talk about right but I'm, what the main thread of what I'm looking to do is to use humour to give people aha moments so they can understand that Everything that we experience in life, every advert, everything we see, every person we interact with, the way that you see it would be different from me if we were living exactly the same reality. And that's because the brain applies psychological meaning to everything we experience. Mm. And I want to make that a kind of serious but fun message with part of it as well. So that's my focus. Wow. Are you trying to prove anything to yourself by doing this? I get past the fear. Yeah. It's on my bucket list that I've always wanted to do it. So the, the fear for me is just standing up. It's funny because I've I've never had a problem making a fool of myself, right? So I've never had any boundaries that says, yeah, I'm just going to try it. Let's see. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a learning disability and I was like, I'm not going to get tested for this. Instead, I'm going to go and write a book. And within a month, you know, the positive thinking stuff, those vibes that you put out, within a month I got introduced to a publisher. Mm -hmm. and within six months I had the first book done. Are you dyspraxic? Yeah, <laughs> combinations. Wow, we got com two dyspraxics with yeah, me. Too. <laughs> uh, I jumble words and stuff, right? And for a long time, it made me think that I was really stupid because I didn't fit in the education system. Right. So the reason that I had a successful sales career was not because I was successful at sales. It was because I was in sales because I didn't think there was anything else I could do. So I've got a very unusual mind. I'm very talented. I'm successful. I know that now, mm -hmm. but I spent more than half my life believing that I was stupid partly because of stuff that happened in childhood and stuff as well, which is why I'm I'm a believer that part of the binge eating and stuff like that, there's always a reason behind something. And sometimes it's because somebody was mean to you or a jerk to you, mm. but sometimes it's just normal. Mm -hmm. I've got a buddy, Adam, that's like the master of the power of attraction and positive thinking and has got complete mastery over the brain and how he thinks. It's incredible for that kind of stuff. So I'll be sharing stories like that. I know a lot of inspirational people. I think it's interesting because there's a lot of people that successful people and you look back and they've done stand-up in their life so I feel like it's something that you know if you go and bomb on your set I think that's probably going to be a great great experience for you like but if you also are very successful on your set of course that would be a great experience but I think like for me personally bombing on a set there can't be much more Worse. more like you know that feeling there and then that's probably as low as you could probably get and then once it's done it's like well I don't have to see these fuckers again anyway. Yeah. It's like For some reason, it's making me grin massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever had a bigger smile as this. So you're talking yeah. about all these negative, scary things and it just shows me that I'm ready because yeah, yeah. I'm just going, yeah, fuck it, bring it on. Yeah, no. I'm going well, to make him laugh. I said to Ollie, I was like, we should try and do it. I think we should try and do it one day. I, we're probably not ready yet, but I just think, like I said, if I was to go and bomb on set and nothing else I think that I go and do would be as bad as that. So that would be a great experience for me. So one of the, one of the things yes. one of the things that I'd love people that are listening to this to take away from this is the Dr. Pepper rule. And I do this in everything in life of how I coach people, clients, I'll do it in the comedy stuff as well. Is what's the worst that can happen? Mm. Really, at the end of the day, mm. what's the worst that can happen? That's true. And it's a great way to challenge the thinker, not the thought. Because that thought is there because maybe somebody told you that you were silly or terrible at football when you were five, so you never played football again. Or that you didn't try something. Or that you believe that you're stupid. Because what happens with mental health is when you hear something enough times, it switches from that person's voice to being the voice inside your head. Mm. That's the transference. Mm -hmm. So when you examine it and you find out that binge eating is just because you had a really bad mum that was just giving you loads of bags of, sorry, mom, uh, <laughs> loads of bags of crisps and stuff, you realise that it's not a deep psychological thing. It wasn't somebody sticking the finger up your bum or anything like that. They just had bad habits and mm. they passed them on to you. Yeah. So doc the Dr Pepper rule is a great way to think about it because that's the awareness thing. When you ask yourself the right question, you find out why you do something. Then you can decide if to change or not. But if you at least you're aware of it, then you know. And you can stop giving yourself such a hard time about life. Well, I think that's a really, uh, it's yeah. a really powerful thought question and a great note to end on. Cool. Um, 
But Martin, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. And I think, for me, lots of takeaways there. Um, again, we tried to, to veer away as much as we could do from using the buzzword of mental health too many times, but I think it's still, you know, a lot of this is around self-awareness and and what a wonderful kind of contextualised way of, of discussing those kind of topics. So... Mm. Thank you, sir. Um, Thank you. I would say you can find Martin online, but you can't. <laughs> um, Ian, is there anything you want to finish on, mate? No. Uh, where's your first gig? Just... So it's going to be uh, in the Jesus Centre, because I have a God complex, on, oh, right. St. on St. Margaret Street, just off Oxford Circus, so in the centre oh, of London. Cool. It's going to be one day in July, so maybe I'll, I'll coerce Ollie into mention it on a future episode yeah. or one of his amazing posts. So basically, I'm going to try and get other people to use social media, even though I don't. You see mm-hmm. what? Sometimes yeah. you just want more than what you should get. Yeah, <laughs> you don't deserve more social yeah. media. Um, all right, well, look, thank you so much, Martin. Thank that was, uh, that was brilliant. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at the Dog Days Pod. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.